All right. Um, so it's been several weeks since we've had a Wednesday night service. So um, what I'm going to start with is just trying to bring you back up to speed where we were, because I think it's been, what, three or four weeks since we had one of these lessons. Um, so we were still talking about covenant theology, in particular 1689 Federalist uh, covenant theology, which is kind of redundant because you're kind of saying covenant, covenant. But anyway, um, <clears throat> we were specifically talking about the Davidic covenant. Um, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to just go ahead and read. Uh, we are particularly focusing on one little part of uh, chapter 7, section 3. Um, and then I'll try to just review what we went over last time, just to bring you back up to where we were. Um, since we've already covered it more broadly, I'm just going to try to do a short summary. And, uh, and then we'll continue on. So first, the uh, confession says this. <clears throat> says this covenant is revealed in the gospel, talking about the covenant of grace. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. And that's really where we're focusing is we're seeing this step by step or further steps. Um, and we will, Lord willing, complete it by going back and looking at the new covenant when we get to that point. Um, but the confession goes on. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. Um, so what we had been discussing the past several weeks before we had our little break, God gave a covenant to Abraham, which set apart his physical descendants as a nation. The Mosaic Covenant gave the same, exact same people a civil code to govern them, but it did not in itself have a covenant head. This was changed by the institution of God's covenant with David. Micah and Samuel Renahan write this, quote, The Davidic Covenant brings all of the Abrahamic promises to consummation and focuses the Mosaic Covenant into one person. It was under the line of David, specifically Solomon, that at last the nation of Israel reached the fulfillment of being the Abrahamic people, ruling all of the Abrahamic land under Abrahamic, specifically Judean, kings, end quote. What we began looking at last time was the historical context of the Davidic covenant. So first, the Davidic covenant was made in the context of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, as already mentioned. Abraham's covenant specifies the nation and its land. The covenant through Moses specifies the law with its blessings for obedient, uh, obedience and its curses for rebellion. Second, <clears throat> there were several centuries between Israel taking possession of the land and the institution of the monarchy. Okay, You have to bear that in mind. It wasn't they take the land and they set up a king. Um, we see this refrain repeated throughout the book of Judges. What we see is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And of course, Judges is a sad, cyclical story of Israel taking the land in obedience, rebelling against God and being punished through the wicked nations around them, repentance and deliverance, the slide back into apostasy, and on and on we go through the cycle. Third, things did not improve much when Israel finally did get a king, at least at first. Uh, we've read how Israel's kings were to have a specific function as the federal head and civil authority in the kingdom. They were not to usurp other functions in their role as kings. There is a clear distinction between church and state. Um, yes, that is a biblical concept. Um, the king is supposed to be the civil realm, okay? Or, or I should say he is the head. He is the primary person in the civil realm. You have the priests over here that are the church. You want to say it that way? Or, or at least the, the leaders of the church. Okay? So they um, do the priestly function. The king does the kingly function. And unless God uh, ordains the same person to do both, they don't cross. And even if they do cross, they don't cross in their function. They cross maybe in a person. Okay, <clears throat> but a priest is a priest and a king is a king. Okay, um, now consider the ascendancy and reign of Israel's first king, Saul. And this is primarily what we looked at last time. I'm not going to go back over all of these passages because if, I, if my memory serves me, I think we did read all of these. So what I'm just going to do is kind of summarize what happened and I'm going to cite the passage and if you want to write it down and look it up later that's fine or if you want to go back and the video is on sermon audio you can uh, watch that where we actually went over the passages but first Saul was anointed king all right what we read was that the people decided that they wanted a king like the nations and it was not wrong of them to want a king uh, the law of God made a provision for a king and anticipated a king. So having a king was not the problem. The problem was they wanted a king like the nations. Okay? So they were not um, they were not having their minds on heavenly things. They had their minds on earthly things. They wanted to make a name for themselves, in other words. So Saul is the person who is anointed as king. And he's described as the people's king. Okay. Uh, of course, Saul was, from physical appearance, he was taller than everybody. Um, he was handsome. He was, um, you know, he, he, he typified what you would want in a king um, from a worldly perspective. Um, so Saul is chosen to be king. But then Saul, being the people's king, um, trying to build a name for his own self, usurps the priestly duties. Uh, Samuel is not getting to the battlefield in Saul's timing, right? So Saul takes matters into his own hands and he offers the sacrifice. Saul was not authorized by God, who is the true king, to do this. So for this, Saul is going to lose the kingdom. All right, then 
little on down the line. Um, we're in another battle. Uh, Saul is told specifically, kill them all. But he doesn't. He saves the king alive. And Saul utterly rejects, or is utterly rejected by God at that point. Um, Saul tries to blame it on who? The people. He's supposed to be leading the people. He's not supposed to be following the people. In other words, Saul was quite the politician. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the problem with that is, is, as goes these things, politicians usually get caught eventually. And he did. All right. And then we also know that Saul uh, would go on to persecute the next man in line who was not his son, Jonathan, but rather David, the man after God's own heart. And David is, well, just that. He's not the people's king. He's God's man. He's God's anointed king. So finally, we're still looking at the, uh, the context. Finally, there is the prospect of consummation. And I think this is where we left off last time. Uh, Sam Renahan states on this point, quote, The Mosaic Covenant put before the eyes of the people a prospect of consummation. They would enter the land and experience rest from their enemies. That is the idyllic picture that the Abrahamic Covenant promises. But more importantly, what really brings the Israelite kingdom into its complete and consummate stage is when God makes his name to dwell in a particular place. In other words, when there is an established temple of God's presence and blessing in a particular place, then the kingdom will be consummated. The people of God and the land of God, with the presence and blessing of God, is what Israel is called to be through its covenants. End quote. And then to support this claim, Renahan, I think, rightly cites Deuteronomy 12, 8 through, uh, 8 through 12, and I actually do want us to read that passage. So if you'll turn to Deuteronomy 12. And we're looking at verses 8 through 12. So Deuteronomy 12, 8 through 12. All right. <clears throat> it says, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Right. Now, um, before we move on to this next part, Anybody got any comments or questions or pushback? No. Okay. All right. So the context having been established then, let's look at uh, not just 
context, but now let's look at the very establishment of this co uh, covenant and then its component parts. So first, the establishment of the covenant. Second Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read the entire chapter because this is where God institutes the Davidic covenant, or at least where it's recorded. <clears throat> Second Samuel chapter 7, we're reading the entire chapter. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Okay, so we see that there is a fulfillment of what we just read in Deuteronomy 12 in the very first verse. Okay. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father or I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought, uh, brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your heart, uh, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, 
for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. That's the establishment of the covenant with David, and it just dawned on me. I did not give you the scripture references that I promised you a minute ago. Um, let me just go back and do that real quick. Saul is anointed king, 1 Samuel 8, and then 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 25. All right, Saul usurps the priestly duties, 1 Samuel 13, verses 1 through 15. All right, Saul rejected by God, 1 Samuel 14, verse 52 through 15, verse 35. Then I did not actually list a particular passage for the uh, persecution of David by Saul because that's quite a large chunk of scripture. <laughs> so I'll just let you find that on your own. All right. <clears throat> Everybody that wanted to write that down, get it. Very good. All right. Sorry about that. I just dawned on me. I did not give you those uh, passages for if you want to look it up later. All right, back to where we were. So that was the establishment of the Davidic covenant. All right, so now let's break this down into its component parts. And again, I am very heavily relying on the work that was done by uh, Sam Renahan, Renahan, excuse me, um, in his book on covenant theology. So in verse 13, we see that a descendant of David would build a house for the name of Yahweh. Okay. Renahan comments, a house for God's name is not just a house named after God. God's name is his presence. Thus, it is the king's responsibility to construct a temple where God's presence will be manifested among his people and where the people will worship their God. Okay? Get, keep that in your mind because, again, think about broader picture here. We're building towards something. All right. This is not uh, a final manifestation of this. We're building towards something. All right. In verse 14, 
We see the royal descendants of David are required to keep God's law because failure to do so results in God's disciplining him with the rod of men. All right? And then finally, the Davidic king became the covenant head of the people. What we were lacking with Moses, we gain it with David. This vacancy left in the covenant through Moses was filled by David and his seed. As we saw last time we were together, this was always intended to be the case as the covenant through Moses laid out the responsibility of the king long before a king was ever appointed. Again, Renahan states, the Davidic king is appointed as the federal head of the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant had a mediator, Moses, but not a federal head. God delivered the law through Moses, but descent from Moses or relation to Moses did not affect one's standing in the Mosaic covenant. Thus, he cannot be considered a covenant head. Renahan continues, the Davidic covenant established the heirs of David as the representatives or federal heads of the kingdom. They are not just to lead the people as an example of righteousness and law-keeping. They are to represent the people in their law-keeping. Now think about how much of the Old Testament, at least the historical work in the Old Testament, is laid out. And think about what we've been going over in the Minor Prophets. There's always talk about this king. This king was good. This king was bad. Right? That, that's how we start off. We get to talking about how are the people. But we tend to start with king so-and-so walked in the ways of his father David. He was good, basically. Or king so-and-so did not walk in the ways of his father David, and he went after idols and did all these bad things. So uh, the rest of the historical narrative, anyway, in the Old Testament is very much um, saturated with the Davidic covenant, very much, um, especially when we're talking in terms of Judah, king, the southern kingdom. All right, uh, any, any other comments or questions before we go to this next part? All right. So the covenant blessings. All right. It says, first of all, David's name will be made great in verse 9. That's one blessing. And then in verses 10 and 11, it says, the people will be planted in the holy land to have peace and prosperity. So instead of moving around in tents or in... Um, Basically, we now have stability. We have peace. And then in the midst of having stability and peace, we start to have prosperity as well. All right. And then it says in verses, I'm going to call this 14b, uh, in verse 15, a line of kings will come from David leading up to and culminating in the messianic king. Let's actually look back at that passage real quick. Uh, 
I'm just going to start. I'm just going to read all of 14. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Obviously, Christ is not a sinner. Um, it says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. All right. It also says the pre, what we just read, it also says the pre-Messianic kings will be disciplined by Yahweh as a father disciplines his son. Okay? So, discipline is not about justice. Discipline is about improving a person. Okay? Punishment is about justice. Okay? We don't, it's not intended to bring this person to repentance. It's not, justice is about making things right. This says he's going to discipline them. So this is something for their good. This is something to produce repentance when they miss the mark. Okay? So um, much, much in the way that we would treat our children, but much better than the way we would treat our children, um, he disciplines the Davidic kings. And finally, a messianic king will descend from David and sit on his throne forever. Now, let's look at verses 12 through 14 again, and then skip down to 16 for this. Lost my place. Okay, starting in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled talking about David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, there is a fulfillment of this in Solomon. There is not a final fulfillment of this in Solomon. And the reason we can know that is because Solomon died. But his kingdom did not continue on forever. The moment Solomon took his last breath, his kingdom was no more because it was passed on to someone else. All right. But this says, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is an eternal kingdom that we're talking about here. All right. This says, I'll be uh, to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Then it talks about the iniquity stuff that we were just talking about. And we skip down to verse 16. It says, and your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we're talking about an eternal kingdom here. And then talking about also a single king who will rule over that eternal kingdom. And this uh, eternal king is a descendant of David who, at least according to the flesh, comes from his own body. So those are the covenant blessings. Now, the covenant curses. Um, the curses of this covenant are the same as those of the Mosaic covenant in that the Davidic king became the federal head of that covenant by virtue of the Davidic covenant. So disobedience, well, with obedience, it meant blessings of peace and prosperity, right? Um particularly in the presence of God in the temple at Jerusalem, okay? Um, really, just to summarize this, obedience meant God's presence, okay? We're, we're blessed with God's presence. Disobedience meant slow and steady punishment 
much like was mentioned a few weeks ago when Jason was talking about the locust and Joel, where where it comes in waves. So it's not, well, they come and they wipe everything out. It's they come and they wipe that out. And there's another wave and they wipe that out. And we keep having wave after wave. And then suddenly, oh, wow, everything's gone. So it's kind of like that. It's more of a slow, steady thing. I think very much that's exactly what we're seeing in Joel, actually, is um, we're seeing the carrying out of these covenant curses. Um, This would, of course, continue all the way to the loss of God's presence in the temple and then the loss of the land. And historically, that happened. Um, This is not something we have to speculate about. That actually happened. That's the uh, covenant curses. Anything on that before I go to this next part? All right. So then we come now to the nature of the covenant. Uh, The Davidic covenant is often rightly compared to the Abrahamic covenant in that it is a dualistic covenant. On the one hand, there is promise of a seed that will rule over the holy nation forever. This is the covenant of grace in the form of a promise within the Davidic covenant. On the other hand, there is the condition that the Davidic kings must keep the Mosaic law for the reception of the covenant blessings and they would receive the covenant curses for failure to do so. So we Again, we see covenant of grace is present in the form of a promise and as yet unrealized promise, but nevertheless, it's there. At the same time, we see a physical element, just like in the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and this is a covenant of law, okay? a covenant of works, wherein there must be uh, covenant obedience to receive the blessings, and there will be covenant curses for disobedience. Okay? <clears throat> Jeffrey Johnson comments, was the Davidic covenant a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? That is to say, was the promise to David conditional or unconditional? The answer depends upon who is asked. If we ask King David, he would respond by saying that the promise of an eternal kingship was unconditional. I think you see that in his response, in his prayer or his praise of the Lord for this. Yet, If we ask any of David's children, they would have to answer by saying that they had been given a legal condition to obey. Because again, they're being judged as kings. So-and-so was like his father David and followed the Lord with his heart. Or so-and-so was not like David because he did list these things. Right? So uh, to kind of see this, I actually want us to look at a couple passages. So first, we're looking at the unconditional aspect of this. So let's turn then to uh, Psalm 132. And this is going to be verses 11 and 12. So Psalm 132 verses 11 and 12. It says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your son keeps my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. 
Well, in verse 11, it seems like we have something that's unconditional. But then in verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant, that's a condition. If. If this, then that. All right. Now, uh, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 22. This is going to be verses 1 through 9. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. All right, it says, Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah. So we know this is the Davidic king. And speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if, there's a condition, for if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this uh, house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, You are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon. Yet surely I will make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, and worship other gods and served them. What are we to make of this seeming conundrum now? The um, Lord has made an unconditional promise to David. And now we're seeing conditions and we're seeing that God is dead serious about this. If you don't meet these conditions, I'm going to destroy you. The answer to this question is the same as when we looked at it regarding Abraham's covenant. Both the gracious promise and the condition to obey are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay? So both the grace, covenant of grace, and the covenant of works aspects of the Davidic covenant, just as with the Abrahamic, are fulfilled in Christ. Again, Johnson states this, Solomon uh, succeeded David, but it was not Solomon whom God ultimately had in mind when he established the Davidic covenant. Rather, it was Jesus Christ. For Christ was not only a descendant of David, he was the only descendant of David that perfectly kept the law as evidenced by his resurrection from the dead. See how these are building on each other now. So, uh, 
I'm going to get done a little early, I think. This concludes our study now of the Old Testament covenants of promise. Right? So, Lord willing, I intend to conclude this study, uh, chapter 7, by returning to the New Covenant to see how all the promises of the... Uh, all the promises of these covenants of promise and all the conditions as well find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's my intention to finish this up. I was going to try to do some lessons on some opposing views, but given how long we've been in here, I don't want to um, wear you out on covenants. So <laughs> I'm just going to try to conclude that way. And if anybody's got uh, anything else, um, we can talk about that as it comes up. But I think we kind of covered the Presbyterian view when we were doing our uh, video series and our debate. Um, I think we were able to even critique our brother we would agree with overall in, in that one. So um, before we dismiss, do we, does anybody have any other comments or questions or anything like that? All right, well, then we will um, we'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we thank you for your grace that is given to us by way of covenant. Um, I pray that you would continue to bless us and guide us in our study of your covenants, which ultimately lead to the ultimate covenant, um, the new covenant in Christ's blood. Pray that you would Continue to help us to see how these old covenants point ultimately to that perfect covenant. I thank you for our inclusion in that new covenant, fully of grace. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.